The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning, I'm Brian Etchison. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, toward the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a lamb he was led to slaughter, like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does, this prophet, does, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Brian. Well, good morning, everybody. Before I get into the text here, uh, it is customary the Sunday before Thanksgiving each year for uh, the pastor to get up and uh, talk about uh, year and generosity. Uh, stay with me here. Not long ago, in the rain, uh, as Jordan uh, reminded us, we celebrated our 40th anniversary. And one of the things about the history of Christ Pres Church is a legacy of a, a, a very, very generous membership, which has, of course, enabled the church to care very well, exceptionally well for its members, uh, and also to uh, address meaningfully so many of the needs that are out there in our city and also in the world. And so this past year, uh, even in a pandemic year, uh, it was the most generous year that our church has ever had, uh, both in terms of, of member generosity and also our ability as a church to be generous, uh, not only for internal ministries, but especially for ministries of need outside of of the church. Uh, just a few examples of the last year, we've been able to sustain and strengthen ministries now at four uh, Christ Pres locations. Uh, that includes the planting of our fourth and uh, first cross-cultural congregation, uh, CPC Koinonia in Northwest 
Nashville, they already are in their own building and it's a thriving congregation, uh, even under the conditions of a pandemic uh, for which we can thank God. And uh, last week, uh, you may know also that our Cool Springs congregation uh, moved into their very own first facility. And so they are worshiping this morning, even now as we speak, they're getting ready to worship in that new facility because of member generosity. We get to support over 50 nonprofit partnerships around the city and uh, throughout the world. Uh, We also got to contribute meaningfully uh, this past year to disaster relief in places like Afghanistan and Haiti and of course uh, in response to the nearby Waverly floods. Uh, We have been able to increase group life with connect groups and four groups and learning groups and city groups. Uh, And we've been able to add key and essential staff members uh, for support of future flourishing and health for all of our congregations. So that's just a, a short summary of the highlights of things we've been able to do because of member generosity. And so if you have been a contributor in this way, I want to thank you for being a contributor because it opens the door for all kinds of possibilities uh, in terms of what God uh, does through our congregation specifically. So thank you for your faithfulness there. Uh, I also want to remind you as we do every year at this time that every year between 25 and 35% of the entire year's um, resources come in during the holiday season. And like every year, we're depending on that to happen again this year so that ministry can continue to move forward and flourish. Uh, So all those things being said, various options uh, for generosity exist. Uh, That includes mail-in and online giving as well as just giving here at a worship service, stocks and securities and and other options. All of that detail can be found at christprez.org slash give. So uh, there's uh, this week's uh, announcement there and uh, now we get to turn to what I was telling somebody this morning is possibly one of the most heartwarming, if not the most heartwarming passages of scripture for me in all the Bible. And I'm so excited to tell you why. And I'll get to the why toward the end of the message. So hope you'll stay with me until then. So so in his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul uh, makes this head-scratching statement where he says, I have learned the secret of being content, of being glad, of being settled in my soul when things are going terribly. He writes the letter from prison. He's also somebody who regularly faces things like hunger and thirst, loneliness, violence, constant death threats. And yet in those conditions, he has learned, he says, the secret of being content. And he also curiously says, and this is where you scratch your head, I have also learned the secret of being content when things are going exceptionally well, when I'm living in plenty. Now implied in that second statement is this, if we have everything that the world can offer to us, good looks, abundant resources, great networks, happy, jet-setting life, it does not guarantee that we will be happy. It offers no guarantee. The good life, as we understand it, offers no guarantee. 
And what better way to start a sermon than a, an insightful quote from Brad Pitt? Brad Pitt, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, said this, All of these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our versions of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? We've got to find something else. We are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. I am the guy who's got everything. But I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. It doesn't help you sleep any better. Today, we have a Brad Pitt type in front of us. He's a man from Africa, and he's a portrait of what you could call worldly success. And he's also a very unsettled man in his soul. He's looking for answers that he hasn't found yet. And so I'd like to talk about the experience of this Ethiopian eunuch and how our stories might fit into stories like his under three headings. First of all, a prosperous man who's searching for answers. That's the eunuch. A simple man who has the answers. That's Philip the evangelist and deacon. And then a welcome that is accessible to everyone. So let's start with the prosperous man who is searching for answers. Verse 27, he's described as a eunuch. Now, a eunuch was uh, a, a court official uh, and a eunuch was a eunuch, a castrated man, because people in the royal family wanted to eliminate all risk that their daughters might be impregnated by a servant. And so if you wanted to serve, if you wanted to have access to power and all this wealth and all these resources, you had to do something extreme uh, in order to get there. And, and, and he did. But he's described as a eunuch. He's a court official of a queen, the queen of Ethiopia, and her name is Candace. And it says that he was in charge of all her treasure. He was her financial minister. He's writing in this, in this account, he's writing... Uh, from Jerusalem back to his home, Ethiopia, in a chariot, which was like an ancient limousine. You had to be very wealthy in order to ride in a chariot. He was a cultural elite. Uh, you know, he, like I said, he had access to, to power. He was a member of the queen's court. Uh, he was intellectually sophisticated. We see him reading aloud in, in a time of history where most people didn't read. The only people who read were, were people with, with advanced, sophisticated education and access to the greatest, um, you know, sort of Ivy League equivalents of those, day, uh, of those days. He had great wealth, so much that he was able to travel in comfort, which was a very rare thing. He owned a personal copy of the Isaiah scroll. And in those days, that was like, you know, owning an ancient piece of art. It was a very, very expensive thing, the scroll. It was a verbal, verbal tradition back then because people couldn't afford to buy scrolls. And so we see that this man, he's made it in so many ways. He's successful in, in, in so many ways. And yet there is an ache that he can't get rid of. 
an ache that he experiences in the midst of his success. And so we find him in this account uh, coming home from a pilgrimage that he has been on to Jerusalem. He's what you could call a God-fearer. There's another example of a God-fearer in Acts chapter 10 named Cornelius. This was somebody who was not ethnically Jewish and yet who was somehow drawn to, to the God and the worship and way of life of the people of Israel and yet who was an outsider. And so he's a Gentile outsider drawn, into, or drawn toward Jewish faith and life. But why would he have been drawn toward Jewish faith and life when... After all, he was a powerful Ethiopian. Ethiopia, Ethiopia was a place at that time <clears throat> that boasted many gods. You just take your pick. Pick your favorite god. If you like rain, pick the god of rain. If you like money, choose the god of money. If you like power, choose the god of power. You can pick any god you wanted. Worship any god you wanted, and you didn't have to travel in order to, to get to that god. And here we see him making a long journey, an expensive journey, to get close to Jewish faith and Jewish life. It becomes even more strange that he would take this trip when we, when we remember that he was a Gentile. And, and the furthest a Gentile could go in the temple is the outer courts. You did not have access to the inner courts of the temple. You were on the periphery as a Gentile, but as a eunuch, you couldn't even get into the Gentile court. Because you were regarded as unclean, as damaged goods, unworthy of being in the presence of the worship of Yahweh. So why would this guy travel all this distance when he knows that when he gets where he's going, he's going to be left on the outside? All he'll be able to experience is the echo of other people entering in to what his heart longs for but cannot have. Why would he do this? It's so striking that this man who was regarded as a winner in his own homeland would rather be a loser among the Jews if it meant that he could possibly find an answer to his ache. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch is by no means the first or the only person in the Bible who is successful and lost. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he's got all the fame, all the fortune, all of the libido gratification, all of the luxury that a person could ask for, and his conclusion about his own life is that it's all vapor. It's all just passing and, and, and evaporating before my eyes, just like you know, a handful of smoke would. It's all vapor. It's vanity, it's meaningless, it, it's all temporary, it's all going away, it's all got a shelf life. And so he, doesn't, he has a hard time finding contentment. Nicodemus is another man, he's a very wealthy, successful, powerful man in the New Testament. You know, his ears were the first words to hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was in a private conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus whom Nicodemus sought out in the middle of the night. A woodworker being sought out by this powerful politician 
an influencer in the middle of the night for wisdom about the meaning of life because he still hadn't found what he was looking for. Then there's another man that we know from the Bible as the rich young ruler, and he's described as a man of great, a young man of great wealth. He's like the, the Elon Musk or the Kim Kardashian of his day, except he was also very religious. Uh, moral virtue defined his life, and, and he, he, like the Ethiopian eunuch, like Nicodemus, had everything the world could offer. And he says to Jesus, what do I still lack? Can you help me? Because something is still missing. Now back to the Ethiopian eunuch here. He's invested in a long, costly trip. Uh, he's invested his, his mind share. He's, it says that he's reading from Isaiah and he's reading from the 53rd chapter, which means he's already, in all likelihood, read 52 chapters looking for the meaning of life. And he's read it all out loud, it says. And he humbles himself and he asks this unknown, ordinary, pedestrian man in the middle of the desert named Philip, what does this all mean? Do you know? Do you know, you know the secret? If you do, can you share it with me? You know, Joseph's son, famously said that 95% of people pass the test of adversity, but fail the test of prosperity. This man is not failing the test of prosperity. You know, any pride that, that, that he might be tempted to cling onto from his resume, his money, his status, his fame, his power, his access, his networks, his sophistication, he doesn't care. Again, he'd rather be a loser in Jerusalem than a winner in Ethiopia. All of that stuff, like the Apostle Paul also said in Philippians, is as dung, as refuse, as trash, as sewage compared to this treasure that these Jewish people seem to have and that I, that I want, but I don't know how to get there. You know, his humble response, his asking this simple, ordinary man, this dignitary asking a simple, ordinary man walking barefoot in the middle of the desert, can you help me, is a picture of what God wants from all of us. You know, we did this whole, you know, financial year-end, you know, announcement thing just a couple of minutes ago. If you are not sure where you are with God, if you are not sure where you are with Christ, if you're searching for answers, please, please keep your wallet in your pocket. The very first thing that God wants from you, the, 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 the primary and first treasure God wants from you is for you to say help. Can you help me? Will you help me? I have need. I'm lost, will you please find me? That, that's the greatest treasure that you could offer to God if you find yourself in the same place as the Ethiopian eunuch. Looking for answers, still not found them. So that's the prosperous man who's searching for answers, but then there's the simple man, Philip, who has the answers and gives them. It says in verse 30 that Philip overhears this strange exotic man in a chariot, reading words that had become deeply familiar to Philip. And these are words from the prophet Isaiah, specifically from Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep, 
He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth, and in his humiliation, justice was denied to him. His life is taken away from the earth. Then Philip, hearing these words being, these familiar words being read by this Ethiopian dignitary, can't help but walk, just boldly walk up to the chariot and say, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand? And, and the response he gets is, no, how, how can I understand? I'm intrigued, but I don't understand. How can I understand without somebody guiding me? And then it says that beginning with this very scripture from Isaiah 53, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And this is the task of every Christian evangelist and preacher. To demonstrate how every part of scripture, not to mention how everything true and everything beautiful, because everything true and everything beautiful points to the same thing that all of scripture, which itself is true and beautiful, points to Jesus, his person, his work. It is not the primary task or even a secondary task for a Christian evangelist or preacher to fix social problems or to fix personal problems. It is not an evangelist or a preacher's job to become another talking head about politics and the issues. Those are so far gone from what is central to the calling of an evangelist and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are here to point people to a person, not to fix things. Because only Christ can fix things. Only Christ's kingdom can bring healing to the world in ways that no partisan or philosophical vision has ever been able to. The evangelist preacher's job is not to help people find the good life, the happy life, the virtuous life, or the successful life, or, or to give you six steps to becoming handsome, rich, and wise. That is not an evangelist or a preacher's calling. An evangelist preacher's calling is what Philip did to help people see that if it is true, if it is beautiful, if it is biblical, then it is about Jesus. And when you show up in Jesus' name as opposed to showing up in your own name, several things happen. We see them all in Philip. First, there's a confidence that emerges when you're coming in Jesus' name and you know you're coming in Jesus' name. He approaches, initiates with, and teaches an exotic, powerful, wealthy dignitary who is, for the most part, inaccessible to people outside of the queen's court. And and this man, barefoot in the desert, doesn't care about that stuff. Yeah, I remember when, when we went to New York City, uh, it, was one, it, was, it was wonderful and it was so intimidating. And I, I sat down with my mentor and I said, look, I, I don't know if I'm cut out for New York City. I, I couldn't get into Harvard 
or Princeton or Dartmouth or Columbia, let alone have anything to say to these brilliant people here. What, what do you think of that? And he said to me, well, I've been here for decades now. Before I got here, I was a professor at a small seminary and a pastor at a small rural church. And over the course of time, I have found that I actually have a treasure that people more powerful, more wealthy, and more wise than me need. And so, young man who couldn't get into any of these universities if he had tried, recognize that you, as the Bible says, have a treasure inside this jar of clay that you are that can benefit people who are looking for answers. You know, this confidence that, 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 that Philip and my mentor took into their ministries is, is, a, is a kind of Christian contentment that breathes non-competitiveness. Nobody's comparing their hat size to the person next to them. Everybody is regarding other people as equals and themselves as equals to everybody else. Because the gospel, and this is what drove Philip, because Jesus, the gospel, those two words are, are, are interchangeable. According to the gospel, according to Jesus, all people are so damaged that they are helpless and hopeless without Christ and without what Christ came to bring. And in addition to being so helpless and hopeless and damaged, all people are so valuable that Jesus was energized by the prospect of giving up everything in order to provide what we need in our damaged, helpless, hopeless estate. So valuable that he endured what is written in Isaiah 53, that he was despised and rejected by men. That the punishment that brought us peace with God was laid upon him. We were so valuable he was willing to endure that. That should give us confidence that we cannot find from wealth and power and access and reputation, all of which can be lost in a heartbeat. Philip and anyone in Christ can say, I am nobody's inferior because I am a treasure bearer with a greater treasure even than, the, than a man in a chariot could ever boast. And I am nobody's superior. I am, as Steve Brown likes to say, a beggar who has the privilege of telling other beggars where the bread is. Confidence, also kindness. There's this demonstrable warmth here in the way that Philip treats this Ethiopian man. 
And this is remarkable because there are several barriers that, that, that were so common in that day and age in culture. There was an ethnic barrier. Philip is Greek. This other man is African. There were cultural barriers. Philip was Greek and, and, and this man was, was again, from, from Ethiopia. Philip had a, a lighter brown skin in all likelihood. This, this man had a dark brown skin in all likelihood. It's interesting, right before this passage, we find Philip preaching the gospel in a Samaritan village. And if you, if you go to Luke's prior book, the gospel according to Luke, in, in, in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus took his disciples straight through a Samaritan village and the disciples said, hey Lord, since we're in Samaria and we all hate the, Samaria, the Samaritans, why don't we call fire down on them from heaven? Let's show him who's boss. Let's show him who's king of the world. And, and it says that Jesus rebuked his disciples and, and possibly from memory of what Jesus had done rebuking his disciples for their us against them posture, Philip is now preaching the gospel in Samaria. And so, so this, this next stop with the Ethiopian is just the next natural stop where he unothers the other with the gospel who, who, that breaks down dividing walls of hostility, as Ephesians 2 reminds us. There were also sexual barriers. Of course, uh, you know, the, the Jews at the time would ban eunuchs from fellowship, as I've already explained, but Greeks like Philip were accustomed to mocking eunuchs, calling them half men. Could you imagine the self-consciousness that this that this eunuch must have had in, in a conversation with a Greek man in light of that. And yet Philip is kind to him. He disarms any of those fears. And then there's this spirit of welcome. You know, the eunuch asks Philip humbly, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? And it says that Philip goes down in the water with the man. He had to touch him in order to do this. Somebody who was regarded as ceremonially unclean by the, by the you know, Old Testament worshipers. And it says that he goes down in the water with the man and baptizes him. And then it says the Spirit of the Lord takes Philip away and the eunuch is left alone with his chariot and the scroll from Isaiah. What happens next? A welcome that is accessible to anyone. That's what happens. You know, this newly baptized man, he, he, he doesn't see Philip anymore. It says he goes on his way, heads back toward his hometown. Now, during the baptisms a moment ago, Pastor Todd said, God is a family God, which to a man like this would be such a wounding statement would land as such a wounding statement because he had no family. And yet, what would he read if he picked back up the Isaiah scroll? Remember, he's, he's in chapter 53 when Philip shows up. If he picks it up, there's still a long journey home, and keeps reading, he will get to Isaiah chapter 56, which is a couple 
more chapters to the right. And if he keeps reading, this is what he will read. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. I have chills right now from my toes to my head. This is what the Lord says. This is why this passage is the most precious passage in all the Bible to me. This is what the Lord says. I will give them, the foreigners and the eunuchs, I will give them an everlasting name, children, posterity, a generation to generation. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Does that not take your breath away? If it does not take your breath away, you are not aware of how damaged you are. This is a glorious word for damaged people who feel like outsiders. Don't you dare say you're on the outside. Don't you dare say that you will be cut off. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God, This is what this means for damaged people. The only thing, the only things that can keep you from Jesus, the only thing that can keep you from the promises of Isaiah 53 and the promises of Isaiah 56 are two things. Either your pride, you won't be helped. You you won't be helped. You won't engage somebody that, that the world says is less than you. Even if they have a treasure, you won't, you won't be helped because your position and your status and your, your good name are above all these things. Your pride will keep you from what you need the most. But the other thing that will keep you, if you're not among the prideful who won't be helped, is your self-contempt because you think you can't be helped. These are the only things that will keep you from what, what Philip and the Lord gave to the eunuch freely. Pride and self-contempt. Jesus Christ himself became a dry tree. He had no wife. He had no children. He had no immediate family of his own except his mother and his father. He was excluded. He was cut off. He was cast out. He was regarded as unclean. Why? So that every damaged sinner, every damaged sufferer, every damaged outsider could be brought inside, not not only into the foyer, but to the table, which is where the Lord brings us now. You know, the eunuch asked the question, what should stop me from being baptized? And if you are a damaged sinner, a damaged sufferer, a damaged person who feels like or maybe has been treated like an outsider, and yet your heart has been anchored to the person and work of Jesus Christ, to his life, death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. Another question that you could ask is what should stop me from taking a seat at the Lord's table? And the answer would be the same answer that Philip gave to the eunuch absolutely nothing should stop you. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that that you sent your son Jesus into the world in the same way that you sent Philip out into the desert. 
to be able to explain and give the answers about the meaning of truth and beauty and all that is in Scripture. You sent your son so that every damaged, sinful, suffering person who feels like an outsider when they ask what should stop me from gaining full access and belonging, the answer could be absolutely nothing. Because Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but didn't because we couldn't and he did it on our behalf and he died the death that we deserved because we fall short of your glory and goodness. He did that in our place. He became cut off. He became as a dry tree. He did not have a home. He did not take a wife. He did not have biological children. He was despised and rejected and left alone so that we could be brought into your family and so that we could hear similar words. Let no foreigner who has bound themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me. And let no cut off person complain, I'm only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says, I will give you an everlasting name and your name will not be cut off. For this we thank you, Lord, as you invite us to your table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.